Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. listeners, and welcome back to another episode. I wanted to start this episode by thanking everyone, all of my equally odd friends, listeners, and family for their continued support. It seems as if the world has gotten a little odd in itself, and I want you all to know that I'm happy you're joining me for this episode and for future episodes. We're all super stressed, and this whole COVID-19 thing is super freaky, But let's all remember to keep our heads up and to help those who might need it. No more wrestling in the Walmart for the last bottle of hand sanitizer, okay? If you have an elderly neighbor or someone who can't make it to the store, offer to pick up something for them or leave some supplies by their door. Even if you don't have a means to purchase items for somebody else, just knowing that a human being is thinking about you and cares about your well-being is probably one of the best things in the world. Give your neighbors a call and check in. On a lighter note, all of this alone time will likely motivate the creatives of this world to create amazing things. I mean, wasn't Stoker feverishly writing Dracula during a cholera epidemic? There'll also be likely a whole lot of babies on the way. What with all the staying home and who doesn't like babies? So care about your fellow humans, embrace social distancing, and wash your fucking hands. Anyway, on with the show. Spiritualism and mediumship, two topics I keep coming back to as this podcast progresses. This week, I bring you the tale of the charlatan who swindled Mary Todd Lincoln and his connections to a presidential assassin, and tales of other first ladies who entertained mediums at the White House. I'll also discuss a medium that Jane Pierce swore was the real deal, and even told the woman that when she resided in the White House, she'd bring the woman in via the front door. An illustrious entrance, indeed. Of course, that never actually happened. She did get to use the side entrance once. Champagne wishes and caviar dreams, folks. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, I thought it'd be prudent to get to know the art of fortune-telling a little bit and how it differs depending on the services that are offered. There are many different practices in fortune-telling, and those practices vary from psychic to psychic. Many psychics only rely on the practice of consultation, almost like talk therapy, 
but about what might happen in the future, or what might have happened in a past life. From Wikipedia, quote, Common methods used for fortune-telling in Europe and the Americas included astromancy, porgy astrology, pendulum reading, spirit board reading, cassiography, or reading tea leaves in a cup, cartomancy, fortune-telling with cards, tarot reading, crystallomancy, reading of a crystal sphere, and chiromancy, palmistry, reading of the palms. The last three have traditional associations in the popular mind with the Roma and Sinti people, often called gypsies. Another form of fortune-telling, sometimes called reading or spiritual consultation, doesn't rely on specific devices or methods, but rather the practitioner gives the client advice and predictions, which are said to have come from spirits or in visions. So here's a list of common practices that psychics might use. Electromancy, by observation of a rooster pecking at grain. Astrology, by the movements of celestial bodies. Astromancy, by the stars. Augury, by the flight of birds. Bazi, or bazai, or four pillars, by hour, day, month, and year of birth. Bibliomancy by books, frequently but not always religious texts. Cardamancy by playing cards, tarot cards, or oracle cards. Ceromancy by patterns in melting or dripping wax. Chiromancy by the shape of the hands and lines in the palms. Chronomancy by determination of lucky and unlucky days. Clairvoyance by spiritual vision or inner sight. Pleromancy, by casting of lots or casting bones or stones. Cold reading, by using visual and oral clues. Crystallomancy, by crystal ball, also called scrying. Ecstasy, by the entrails of animals. Face reading, by means of variations in face and head shape. Feng Shui, by earthen harmony. Gastromancy, by stomach-based ventriloquism, historically. Geomancy, by markings in the ground, sand, earth, or soil. Hierospacy, by the livers of sacrificed animals. Horary astrology, the astrology of the time the question was asked. Hydromancy, by water. I Ching divination by yarrow stalks or coins and the I Ching. Kao Sim by means of numbered bamboo sticks shaken from a tube. Lithomancy by stones or gems. Nebiology by moles, scars, or other bodily marks. Necromancy by the dead or by spirits or souls of the dead. Nephilomancy by shapes of clouds. Numerology by numbers. Oniromancy by dreams. Onomancy by names. Palmistry by lines and mounds on the hand. Parrot astrology by parakeets picking up fortune cards. Paper fortune teller, origami used in fortune telling games. Pendulum reading, 
by the movements of a suspended object. Pyromancy, by gazing into fire. Robdomancy, divination by rods. Rune casting, or runic divination, by runes. Scrying, by looking at or into reflective objects. Spirit board, by planchette or talking board. Taromancy, by a form of cartomancy using tarot cards. And tassiography, or tassiomancy, by tea leaves or coffee grounds. Discussing the role of fortune-telling in society, Ronald H. Isaacs, an American rabbi and author, opined, Since time immemorial, humans have longed to learn that which the future holds for them. Thus, in ancient civilization, and even today with fortune-telling as a true profession, humankind continues to be curious about its future, both out of sheer curiosity as well as out of a desire to better prepare for it. Popular media outlets like the New York Times have explained to their American readers that although 5,000 years ago soothsayers were prized advisors to the Assyrians, they lost respect and reverence during the rise of reason in the 17th and 18th centuries. With the rise of commercialism, the scale of occult practices adapted to survive in the larger society. According to sociologists Danny L. and Lynn Jorgensen, Ken Feingold, writer of Interactive Art as Divination as a Vending Machine, stated that with the invention of money, fortune-telling became a private service, a commodity within the workplace. As J. Peter Zane wrote in the New York Times in 1994, referring to the Psychic Friends Network, whether it's 3 p.m. or 3 a.m., there's Diane Warwick and her psychic friends selling advice on love, money, and success. In a nation where the power of crystals and the likelihood that angels hover nearby prompt more contemplation than ridicule, it may not be surprising that one million people a year call Miss Warwick's friends." End quote. Now, whether you think that all of this is real or not, I kind of admire the amount of work that goes into reading a person and convincing them that what you're saying is legitimate. The art of fortune-telling has been depicted in woodcuts dating all the way back to the 1500s, so there's got to be something to it. Lincoln's wife certainly thought so. Mary Todd Lincoln was inconsolable over the loss of her husband and her sons and did everything in her power to speak with them again, even reach out to the world behind the curtain. Personal grief can be a great motivator when it comes to spending inordinate amounts of money and time on what many would consider a frivolous venture. It's weird to think that seances were held at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, isn't it? Apparently Abe Lincoln wasn't convinced that spiritualism and seances were real, but he dutifully sat in on one or two to appease his wife. Spiritualism during the 1800s, though, wasn't odd at all. Many people invited mediums into their homes and held seances to try to contact loved ones who had passed. Even the man who would eventually take Lincoln's life, John Wilkes Booth, attended seances in hopes of contacting his sister. 
It's hard to get an accurate tally of exactly how many spiritualists there were during this time, because most spiritualists didn't attend a formal church. But it's estimated that anywhere from 200,000 to 11 million people embraced the practice. Quite a leap, I know. I don't want you to think that Mary Todd Lincoln was the only First Lady to hold seances at the White House. In fact, several First Ladies have performed seances or invited spiritualist mediums in to hold them on the property. In an article for Vice.com, Amanda Arnold writes, quote, While it's possible some ladies were better at concealing their practices, four in particular, Jane Pierce, Edith Wilson, Florence Harding, and Nancy Reagan, held moderate to strong interests in the occult, according to Pat Kreider, the executive director of the National First Ladies Library. That list could also include Grace Coolidge, Roosevelt, Lady Bird Johnson, and Jackie Kennedy, all of whom claimed to have seen Lincoln's ghost or felt his presence during their years in the White House, though they weren't bringing in astrologers and using mediums like others did. As to how these ladies formed a fascination with the occult, Kreider told broadly, people who are desperate for help, for answers, sometimes go to extreme measures. The assertion that many of the former president's wives were desperate for help is easily argued. Pierce, the first known first lady occultist, came to bear the nickname The Shadow in the White House and lived in a permanently depressed state after her last surviving child, her son Benny, died in a tragic train accident at 11 years old. Weighed down with extreme guilt and anxiety, she initially attempted to beckon his spirit by addressing an emotional letter to him, asking him to return to her so that she could repent her motherly shortcomings. God help me now to correct in bitterness my errors when, oh, it is too late for you to have the sweet benefit of it. And now this Sabbath evening you will come in fancy before me, and I sit close by you with your hand in mine perhaps, or you will lean against me on the sofa, or as sometimes you did on Sunday evening, sit on my lap a while, Pierce wrote. Determined to reconnect with her son, Pierce invited the Fox sisters, key figures in the modern spiritualism movement from upstate New York, into the White House to hold seances. Supposedly, the sessions provided Pierce some respite, though it wasn't lasting. According to her page on the White House website, at the conclusion of her husband's presidency, the couple made a prolonged trip abroad in search of health for her. She carried Benny's Bible throughout her journey. The quest was unsuccessful, so the couple came home to New Hampshire to be near family and friends until Jane's death in 1863. She was buried near Benny's grave. After the Pierce's vacated the White House, lifelong bachelor James Buchanan moved in for four years. But the next spiritualist to live in the White House moved in just after Buchanan's term, Mary Lincoln. Like Pierce, Lincoln lived through the death of her sons, one before Abe's term, one during, and one after. And her occult process of choice was also seances. Even the purportedly honest husband himself attended a seance, according to Carl Anthony, that the Mrs. held in the White House Red Room. 
Apparently, she reached both of her dead sons, Willie and Eddie, whose ghosts, she claimed, visited her in the White House bedroom. Mary exclaimed, Willie comes to me every night and stands at the foot of my bed with the same sweet, adorable smile he always had. He does not always come alone. Little Eddie sometimes comes with him. After her husband's assassination, reports claim that she attended a spiritualist commune. And seven years after his death, she asked the infamous spiritualist photographer, William H. Mumler, to take a couple of pictures of her and her husband's ghost. End quote. Spirit photography, the capture of deceased individuals in photos, was quite popular in the 19th century, and in some cases, the faces that appeared on the finished product weren't even dead. The practice originated as a farce in the 1850s. Stereo cards that depicted specters hovering over the heads of unsuspecting individuals. They were simply for fun, amusement, until a man named Mumler figured out that he could turn it into a money-making endeavor. From Wikipedia, quote, Spirit photography was first used by William H. Mumler in the 1860s. Mumler discovered the technique by accident after he saw a second person in a photograph that he took of himself, which he found was actually a double exposure, end quote. There's actually a very famous photo by Mumler of Mary Todd Lincoln with her husband's ghostly form standing behind her. Seeing as there was a market for it, Mumler started working as a medium, taking people's pictures and doctoring the negatives to add lost loved ones into them, mostly using other photographs as a basis. Mumler's fraud was discovered after he put an identifiable living Boston resident in the photo as a spirit. End quote. Mumler's photo of the ghostly Lincoln watching over his family from beyond was printed and reprinted. Months after his assassination, these photos were widely popular. At this point in history, many families were struggling with the loss of their fathers, brothers, and sons, and so the image of the father of the nation looking over them was a comfort. The interesting thing about the Lincoln photo by Mumler is, when Mary Todd Lincoln sat for the photo, she already knew that Mumler was a fraud, but perhaps that didn't matter to her. So let's explore Mary Todd Lincoln's love affair with spiritualism. Long before she got to the White House, Mary had been in regular contact with mediums and chart readers in both Chicago and Springfield, Illinois. She'd often go to Georgetown to join a circle, a term referring to a gathering of spiritualists who met to summon spirits, at the home of Margaret Laurie and her daughter, Belle Miller. Both had been successful, to Mary's standards, in bringing her son back in spirit, and she consulted with them regularly. Miller was supposed to be able to levitate pianos, one of her many parlor tricks, which eventually coaxed Lincoln himself into joining his wife for one of those seances. Mary believed in the power of Ouija boards, spiritualism, and horoscopes, but completely dismissed premonitions. In fact, when Abe Lincoln spoke to her about a dream he had had about seeing himself in a coffin at an East Room funeral after being assassinated, she replied, quote, I'm glad I don't believe in dreams, or I should be in terror from this time forth, end quote. To Lincoln himself, the spirit world was simply non-existent. He referred to it jokingly as the upper country, 
and firmly believed that the soul lost its identity after death. After her husband's passing, Mary was often visited by spiritualists who sought to console her, though the majority likely just visited to line their pockets. One of those mediums was Lord Charles J. Colchester. Colchester was an Englishman with bold blue eyes and a large mustache, and he professed to have remarkable powers. In his circles, he would produce words on his forearms and blood, read letters that were unopened, produce apparitions, and call out the names of deceased friends of those sitting at the table. One Cincinnati newspaper touted Colchester as the leader of spiritualism in America. Now, I'd like to point out here that I used the word Lord in quotations. He wasn't actually a Lord, and the closest he might have gotten to a noble pedigree was whatever purebred pooches happened to follow him around. Colchester's seances were full of spectacle, a feature that doesn't necessarily mean this shit is real, and he was an avid performer. He's even said to have conducted a seance at the soldier's home, a veteran's hospice. Colchester was a professional charlatan, so I'm guessing that there were lots of spirits and ectoplasm. Journalist Noah Brooks witnessed Colchester's seance and exposed the man as a fraud, simultaneously thwarting an attempt to blackmail Mrs. Lincoln. The following is Brooks' account. Quote, the most terrifying threat that could ever be held over a zealous war correspondent was that of arrest and confinement in the old Capitol prison. Every person who spent much time in Washington during the war will recall with mingled amusement and dread the freedom with which this threat was bandied about among people who were not by any means authorized to promote the rapid transit of anybody to that malodorous Bastille. Let me give an instance in which, though one of the unauthorized, I made use of this fear-compelling threat. A seamstress, Elizabeth Keckley, employed in the White House, had induced Miss Lincoln to listen to the artful tales of a so-called spiritual medium who masqueraded under the name of Colchester and who pretended to be the illegitimate son of an English duke. The poor lady at the time was well-nigh distraught with grief at the death of her son, Willie. By playing on her motherly sorrows, Colchester actually succeeded in inducing Mrs. Lincoln to receive him in the family residence at the soldier's home, where in a darkened room, he pretended to produce messages from the dead boy by means of scratches on the wainscoting and taps on the walls and furniture. Mrs. Lincoln told me of these so-called manifestations and asked me to be present in the White House when Colchester would give an exhibition of his powers. I declined, but meanwhile I received an invitation to invest $1 to attend a Colchester sitting at the house of a Washington gentleman who was a profound believer in this pretentious seer. To gratify my curiosity, I paid the entrance fee and accompanied by a trusty friend went to the seance. After the company had been seated around the table in the usual approved manner, and the lights were turned out, the silence was broken by the thumping of a drum, the twanging of a banjo, and the ringing of bells, all which instruments had been laid on the table ready for use. By some hocus-pocus, it was evident that the operator had freed his hands from the hands of those who sat on each side of him, 
and was himself making music in the air. Loosening my hands from my neighbors, who were unbelievers, I rose and, grasping in the direction of the drumbeat, grabbed a very solid and fleshy hand in which held a bell that was being thumped on a drumhead. I shouted, strike a light. My friend, after what appeared to be an unconscionable length of time, lit a mat, but meanwhile somebody had dealt me a severe blow with the drum, the edge of which caught a slight wound on my forehead. When the gas was finally lighted, the singular spectacle was presented of the son of the duke, firmly grasped by a man whose forehead was covered with blood. While the arrested scion of nobility was glowering at the drum and bells which he still held in his hands, the meeting broke up in the most admired disorder, Lord Colchester slipping out of the room in the confusion. His host subsequently brought down word the discomfited seer to the effect that Colchester was so outraged by this insult that he refused to reappear. A day or two after this, I was astonished by a note from Mrs. Lincoln requesting me to come to the White House without a moment's delay on a matter of most distressing importance. On my arrival, the lady, somewhat discomposed, showed me a note from Colchester in which he requested that she should procure for him from the War Department a pass to New York, and intimated that in case she refused, he might have some unpleasant things to say to her. We made an arrangement by which Colchester came to the White House at a specified hour the next day. And after I had been formally introduced to the charlatan, Mrs. Lincoln withdrew from the room. Going up to Colchester, I lifted the hair from the scar on my forehead, yet unhealed, and said, Do you recognize this? The man muttered something about having been insulted, and then I said, You know that I know you are a swindler and a humbug. Get out of this house and out of the city at once. If you are in Washington tomorrow, afternoon at this time, you will be at the old Capitol prison. The little scamp pulled himself together and sneaked out of the house, and so far as I know, out of Washington, I never saw or heard of him afterward. Lincoln scholar Daniel Mark Epstein noted, Lincoln was concerned about the Colchester's influence to consult with Dr. Joseph Henry, an eminent scientist and secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. The scientist invited Colchester to demonstrate his powers in one of the rooms of the Smithsonian. Henry reported to the president that the medium was a fake. The sound he produced was coming from his own body but Henry could not prove this without thoroughly examining him, and the trickster refused to disrobe. Epstein wrote, Colchester's banishment occurring in the summer of 1863 marked the beginning of the end of Mrs. Lincoln's seances at home, but it was not the end of her commerce with the spirits. She continued to consult with mediums in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia until a few years before she died. End quote. There are other accounts of Henry's inspection of Colchester's tomfoolery, and he came to discover that Colchester's knocking noises, sounds he could seemingly summon from any part of a room, were produced by a specially designed electrical noisemaker, which he strapped to his biceps. Henry happened upon this information purely by chance when he struck up a conversation with a man on a train who had made the device in question and sold it to Colchester small world. Colchester was keen on cheating people, 
whom he believed to be fools, but was apparently honest if he liked a client. I'm not sure how honest he could be, summoning noises from his electronic biceps and claiming to conjure spirits into being, but I guess he had standards? And to further illustrate how small a world it actually is, Colchester was an acquaintance of John Wilkes Booth. Yup, that John Wilkes Booth. They apparently spent ample time together, too. As I mentioned before, Booth would often sit in circles and try to communicate with his departed sister. Apparently, he spent time in Colchester's circles as well, and Colchester spent social time with the future presidential assassin. Colchester was not only a fan of the spirits in the sense of spiritualism, he was also keen on having a swallow, or twelve, and most of the money he earned was spent on whiskey. His alcoholism also caused him to be perpetually short of cash, so when friends asked him out, he went without much convincing. Though he did say that he had to ask the spirits first. The ghost spirits, not the whiskey spirits. Anyway, the spirits were never to deny their conjurer a drink. Colchester's association with Booth also extended to meeting him at the National Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, just six blocks from the Capitol and a stone's throw to Ford's Theater. Colchester would sit with Booth and speak to him, not about the spirit world, but about the future. You see, apparently he was a man of many talents. Colchester supposedly warned Lincoln himself about Booth's intention to assassinate him, but he didn't come right out and tell the man of Booth's plot. Lincoln, as I mentioned before, wasn't keen on such tomfoolery, and he brushed the other man off. When Lincoln was assassinated and Booth fled, Colonel Henry H. Wells, a top military policeman, went to the National Hotel and questioned a man named Bunker, one of the clerks. Bunker told him about Booth and his associations with Colchester, but by that time, Colchester had left the Washington House Hotel, where he'd been staying, and completely disappeared. Mary Todd Lincoln found comfort in seances. From WhiteHouseHistory.org, quote, There is evidence suggest that she hosted as many as eight seances in the White House, and that her husband was even in attendance for a few of them. The seances proved to be such an effective coping mechanism for Mrs. Lincoln, that she once remarked to her half-sister that Willie lives, he comes to me every night and stands at the foot of my bed with the same sweet, adorable smile he always had, and he does not always come alone. Through spiritualism, Mrs. Lincoln, like many Americans at the time, found solace in the belief that one could communicate with lost loved ones. Despite this, Mrs. Lincoln did take a step back from her practice after several months due to societal pressures. The ghosts of Willie and Eddie Lincoln were not the only Lincoln ghosts believed to haunt the White House. The ghost of their father, President Abraham Lincoln, is arguably the most well-known spirit at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The assassination of President Lincoln shook the nation to its core, and almost immediately, rumors about his spirit began to circulate. Many cite that he appears in both the Lincoln Bedroom and the Yellow Oval Room. First Lady Grace Coolidge, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands have all claimed to have seen Lincoln's ghost. 
These rumors were perpetrated by White House employee Jeremiah Jerry Smith. He served as the official duster of the White House for over 35 years, starting in the late 1860s. He'd often congregate around the north entrance and spin tales of ghost sightings to reporters on slow news days. The majority of White House ghost stories developed during the 19th century when spiritualism reached its peak. This was a side effect of the nation's shifting conceptions of death and mourning during the Civil War. Today, these stories have lost most of their prevalence due to the fact that death is perceived much differently in the 21st century. The level of deaths that occurred during the Civil War no longer holds true in comparison to modern warfare. Fallen soldiers are easier to identify thanks to advancements in DNA and the use of dog tags. Additionally, life expectancy and childhood survival rates have climbed exponentially since the 19th century. Death is less commonplace and visible than it was during the Civil War. Spiritualism offered a coping mechanism that was necessary during a time when life was shrouded in death. While today's society looks at the ghost of Lincoln as a silly myth, it once brought solace to a wounded nation." End quote. As I've illustrated, Mary Todd Lincoln wasn't the only First Lady who embraced the spirit world. I've mentioned a few above, but I'd like to focus on another medium, Madame Marcia Champney. Both Mary and Jane Pierce used Madame's services in the White House and attended seances and readings with her off-site. She also entertained senators at her sittings and was a very famous medium in those circles. Champney was a fortune teller. She used crystal balls, tarot cards, and horoscopes to deliver messages from beyond to her paying customers, and those customers consisted largely of politicians, their wives, and socialites. She apparently made comment to an individual who attended one of her sittings as a spy that, quote, a number of senators were coming to her readings. In fact, most of the senators, almost all the people in the White House believed in spiritualism, end quote. Given the politicians were seen by many as the best and the brightest, this certainly dimmed their light at this point in history. In 1926, Harry Houdini, a man hell-bent on exposing every trickster and charlatan that claimed to be a medium or have psychic powers, took to the United States Congress and sat for four days of physical altercations and police interruptions in an effort to support House Resolution 8989. The HR would ban the practice of fortune-telling in the District of Columbia. Houdini was so confident that he could prove the audience, largely psychic mediums, to be fakes, that he held an unopened telegram in the air and asked the crowd if anyone could tell him what was inside. If they were unable to do so, they belonged in jail, Houdini argued. None of the assembled would even try. Houdini was on a quest to bring the truth of spiritualism to light, and he would not back down. He was horrified that individuals in Congress and the White House would use the services of these people to tell the future or resurrect the past. From Atlas Obscura, quote, The famous illusionist claimed that America's elected officials were enthralled to psychic mediums and that this posed a danger to the nation. At the time, most people saw nothing harmful about seeking clairvoyant advice. It seemed amusing and potentially useful. Indeed, spiritualism and the occult 
enjoyed renewed popularity after World War I, end quote. Newspapers nationwide reported hints of seances at the White House and lawmakers consult mediums. It was Houdini's efforts that caused most people to believe that anyone claiming to have psychic powers was a fraud, and believing such things were real showed a person to be gullible or suffering from some form of insanity. No political campaign could run effectively if there was even a whiff of that candidate entertaining psychics. Of course, spiritualists defended their practices, claiming that conjuring spirits was a major part of the foundation of their religion. They sought protection under the First Amendment. Representative Ralph Gilbert of Kentucky said of the plea, quote, I believe in Santa Claus, and I believe in fairy, in a way, and Houdini is taking the matter entirely too seriously, end quote. Houdini used his showmanship and power of persuasion to change people's minds about spiritualism and called upon specific authorities like that of psychologists Joseph Jastrow and Hugo Munsterberg. Quote, Houdini started at the top by outing elected officials with lasting repercussions for the role of faith in American politics. Some beliefs, the mainstream kind, are still mandatory to prove a candidate's moral character. But believing in less conventional forms of supernatural agency, like clairvoyance or astrology, is a serious liability, end quote. Ultimately, Houdini came out the winner. Marcia Champney supposedly foresaw Warren G. Harding's election and his death. She would go on to write an expose titled, When an Astrologer Ruled the White House, and spiritualists would forever spend their time trying to get the public to understand that their religion was only concerned with delivering messages to the spirit world and not associated with psychics or fortune tellers. Champney also predicted the death of Houdini, though she was one day off. She said that he would be dead by November of that year. He passed away on October 31st, 1926. That's it for this week, dear listeners. I'll be back soon with more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time, stay healthy and stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod, and on Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com, and if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes, and if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure that you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to those who have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps. Thank you.